What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the State of Demand Gen podcast. This is your host, Chris Walker. And today I am thrilled to have my good friend on the show, Nick Bennett. Nick, what's up? What's up, man? Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, great to be here. First time we've, we've been going back and forth. I think I've known you for like three years now. First time we met in person, which is crazy. We got the HubSpot conference happening over here. There's tons of people in town. I was out with dinner with some friends last night, and this place was buzzing. So I'm excited to be out there. Uh, what are you most excited for for the week? Just excited to see people that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, it's like in person is back, but it's, uh, you know, people are still doing the wrong thing at in person. It's another combo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's make that the combo right now. So, um, like I've been talking about this for a while. I know that you've been in like field and ABM for a long time as well. Um, with the idea of how do you actually approach physical events, right? So the first thing I think you have to decide, are you going to pay to be a part of someone else's event or are you going to put on your own events? So that's one decision. And then if you are going to go and you're going to pay to be part of someone else's event, what are you paying for? Are you paying for a booth that you're going to set up and then destroy 48 hours later when the conference is over? Are you going to um, pay to have your CEO get the keynote slot at some talk with a bunch of people there? So um, what, yeah, let's just sort of talk through those decisions with people and see what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think you you need to go back to your strategy first. What do you What are you doing in-person events for? It's like, so many people just want to go scan leads at an event and think that's, you know, lead gen 101. It's like, oh, you know, RSDRs are going to call all these people and you're going to be getting people angry because they're, they're cold leads. They're just people that are tire kickers that just want the free swag. But like if you tie it into a digital amplifier to your like digital strategy from your field marketing efforts, it amplifies everything else that you're doing. And I think that's the way that you have to think about it. Like what's the content that you can create? Can you do a podcast with like key accounts that are there. You're already, everyone's already going to be in the same area. How do you get people together to create that content that you can use post event as well as, you know, doing those, those interviews and kind of creating those, those relationships with people in person. It's, it's interesting because I feel like so many people have thought about, you know, in person being back. Does it, does it make sense? Is hybrid here to stay? But I feel like in-person relationships are hard to replicate. Mm -hmm. And I think that's huge. Yeah. And just to go on your point with like the cold leads, the reality is that nobody's coming to your booth to discover your product anymore. People did that in the 2000s and in the early 2010s because of the immaturity of the internet and how you actually discovered products to the place where companies would delay their product launches by months in order so that they could launch and announce the product at the trade show. And the idea of all these things that companies still do that are the same as back then, not recognizing how much things are different with the fact that buyers will now discover your product through peers on the internet, at events with their peers, with people that they trust. Um, they're not coming to your booth to discover your product. And I agree that a majority are tire kickers. And it's just a different time now. Um, when you think you went into some some talking on content, so I, um, we're going to talk through it and then we'll try and get to some like hard points for people. But talk me through this idea of content inside of an event. Yeah, I mean, think about like, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. I was at the the Forrester conference uh, a couple months ago and I was at B2B SMX. And so what I did was our target accounts were already there. I just kind of grabbed them and said, hey, do you mind shooting a quick video with me around what are you using gifting and direct mail for? Like, what are the top reasons that you would buy? And so they gave me all of the pain points that one, they're looking to solve because we were trying to work with them. Also things that 
will help us tailor our messaging and our narrative around that. And just think about how you can use that you know, post-event, during the event, everything that you're using to train and enable your own sales team because you're hearing it directly from those people. So I think that's one of the ways that is incredibly huge. The second way is, again, just going down and just if you have a podcast or if you have a company podcast, like you're already there, just get people and just do a do a face-to-face interview because I guarantee you that relationship that you're building face-to-face is going to be way worth way more than sitting at a booth for 10 hours and hoping people are going to come find you. 100%. Yeah. So I got, um, I think that's such an interesting strategy because inside of that, you have a content strategy, you have a market research strategy and a customer research strategy and a business development strategy. So there's a lot of good things in there in a way that is entirely not salesy, right? So I think there's a there's a big part there. I think a lot of people go into the events with a lot of a sales mindset and it drives the wrong intent. Awesome. So like if we zoom out a little bit and we expand this more, actually, let's just go down the second track, right? So let's let's talk about you own the event, right? So instead of you going to other people's events like B2B SMX or HubSpot conferences, things like that, what's your stance on owning the event? I think micro events are the way to go. Like when I when I think of micro events, I think, you know, get 25, 50, whatever people in a room and you own that event. However, it's much more intimate. You can create much more content from it because you own the the pre, the during and the post. The agenda, everything. Everything. It's you set the content strategy the way that you want it to go. And I think that micro events are actually, I don't want to say the future because I feel like they're already here, but mm-hmm. I feel like that's where people are really leaning into versus these, you know, inbound and B2B SMX and things, because yeah, you're paying, you know, $100,000 to be at say inbound, like, why not do a five city roadshow, and think about all the content that you can get from that, and then spin off and I guarantee you're going to drive more ROI from that than you are buying a booth next Mm -hmm. to the bathroom. Preaching, preaching. So that's there's like a, an experiential part of that that I think is interesting. There's also a content element. This is something that I actually did pre-COVID, believe it or not. So I did a two-city roadshow, and then we had two more cities planned. And obviously, COVID happens. So we had to cancel San Francisco and Austin, but that was working really well for me. You can choose. You you basically choose who is going to speak. Okay, so me and maybe somebody else. Maybe we'll do it together. Who knows? So it's like who's going to speak. It becomes a. I think the core understanding here is that it's a content strategy first that creates an experiential moment, which then leads to business development later. Um, And so I think that people always go into the event saying, how are we going to get these people as leads and follow up with them and do that type of stuff. And if you figure if you set it up more, if I'm trying to create a great experience, and then I'm going to create content. And then when I produce the content, I distribute on the internet, then I'm going to get the value from that. It becomes a a really interesting way to think about the ROI of events generally. I think that the this like direct ROI conversation drives a very like it's very transactional. You know what I mean? And so, uh, yeah, I would love to talk a little bit more about that having that mindset. Yeah, I mean, if you think about even like take ABM for example, the goal is to create elevated experiences for your your prospects. And so really that's how you're tying that into like, when I think of ABM, I think of micro events, I think of digital, like I think of the content, I think of tying it all in together to deliver that elevated experience that is like experimental to, to one degree, but it's, it's, it's raising the bar. It's giving a, people a, a reason to be there. Like there's so many events today. Why would I go join your event over someone else's? Is it the person behind it? Like, let's just take you, for example, all of the content that you create. 
regardless with Refine Labs or not, like I want to go to see Chris. Like I don't want to go like, yeah, you know, I mean, Refine Labs and everyone else is awesome, but like people are going for the people that work for those companies. And so I think that even ties into a larger piece of the content strategy of like, you know, having your employees create content and, and build an audience for themselves, because that's just going to create a flywheel for everything else. And I think it's just being able to to deliver that experience to tie it all back. You're going to deliver a higher ROI if you focus on like how to tie that into your to your target accounts. Yeah, we're gonna get into uh, evangelism in a little bit, but I gotta I gotta just throw I gotta throw something out there and then just get your your reaction. So, ABM and Field is capturing demand. What's your reaction? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, well, so field marketing, there's such a misconception that field marketing is only events. Yeah. And so people think of field marketing as top of funnel, like we're going to create demand. That's that's false. It's, I actually think it's more in pipe. Exactly. Yeah. It's middle and bottom of the funnel. You are capturing that demand that was created probably by your demand gen team that was at the top mm-hmm. of the funnel. However, field marketing teams, especially in tech, not all of them think of it this way. And like I was always under the understanding that like field marketing should be focused on middle and bottom of the funnel. You're accelerating those opportunities that were already out there and that pipeline that was out there. Mm-hmm. But so many people just want to focus on just getting leads into the top of the funnel as a yeah. field marketer through events. Why do you think that is? I think it's just there's a misunderstanding of what's creating demand versus capturing demand as mm-hmm. well. It's like, you know, it's people just think that events are a top of funnel lead gen exercise when it's not it's like you know think of like micro events like that is a perfect example of a way to capture the demand that's already out there Mm -hmm. i was consulting with a company recently and they told they actually have events sit in two different places based on the purpose of the event right so if you're doing events for demand right and then that so that goes up there and if you're doing events for abm or field it was actually under a different team and then so you have two different event strategies that are appropriate for where they sit based on what the buyer is and what your goal is I've never heard of that before. I thought it was super interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, that's actually the first time I've ever heard of that yeah. as well. Because every single time that I've been in field, and I've been doing field marketing for like 10 years now for tech yeah. companies. And it's always, I've seen it be top of funnel focus. I've seen it be more of like that middle and bottom. And I've seen it be both. And like some people think it's, it's you know, the entire buyer's journey. But if you you need to, you need to split it out. I think that's actually a really smart idea. Yeah. Yeah. And just, uh, I got to get this in here. For the record, anyone listening to the podcast, I've also practiced field marketing myself. I've been in the field with, we had a field sales team of 47 reps and I went out with them in the field and sales enablement and events and going to big customer calls and hosting dinners to get expansions with current customers. So like people often think like that I run ads or that I like only produce content. I'm actually a very holistic marketer. I've done all these things, which is why I can speak from experience here. Um, yeah, to just sort of like do, go a little bit deeper, I personally feel like the way that ABM and field marketing is practiced today, they sort of get bu- bunched together, not necessarily for the right reasons, in my opinion, but they get bunched together. And it's purely around capturing demand. And so like even in a ABM quotes for the listeners, even in an ABM strategy, which is nothing more than running a should be nothing more than running a demand strategy to a more specific target account set of target accounts with a different playbook. And so in an ABM strategy, you need the demand creation motion. So like these companies that are using intent data and doing cold call, I still think it's cold calling whether or not you use intent data. I don't know what to say. So cold calling and stuff like that. And they take all that stuff and they don't recognize that you need to move people in market at some you have to figure out how to get your accounts in market you just can't always be in sales mode 
so yeah, those are some of my thoughts on the current state of ABM. And uh, yeah, for <laughs> and we'll just keep going. For the for the record, also, ABM is just a well practiced demand strategy to a set of. You should have a one to one, one to few, and one to many strategy across all of your TAM. I, I was going to yeah. add something to that because <laughs> I, I put I put something on LinkedIn the other day, and I said. Is someone someone put like, you know, what's your marketing hot take? And I said, ABM is just an overused buzzword. It is really just a targeted marketing strategy yeah. to a subset of accounts. And I had so many people attack me that like, you know, that's not true ABM. And like, I'm like, ABM is really just a demand gen strategy. And people were trying to fight me that ABM mm -hmm. is like a methodology. It's like the whole thing behind it. But like, think about failed marketing. Failed marketing has been doing ABM for years. You're just mm -hmm. working on a specific region or territory to a subset of accounts with that sales team. Like I, I used to always be in charge of the East Coast. So it was like different verticals within that East Coast, but it was always a list of target accounts you would mm -hmm. go after. That's all ABM is, but yeah. people want to just use it as a buzzword because their CEO heard it. Yeah. And so check this out. I've been brainstorming this idea of instead of having it be sales and marketing to be creating demand and capturing demand, and so if that was the split, then you would have ABM marketers that sat in sales, right? Or actually sat in demand. I even screwed up, sat in demand capture. And you would have some sales professionals that are actually out there creating demand. And so it creates a really interesting, different way to split the functions that's, I think, more appropriate to what buyers do. Um, yeah, I would love to get your, I sort of butchered the explanation, but I'd love you to get your quick take on that. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a reason why revenue marketers should be paid like salespeople. Pay oh, me commission. Man. Like that, I mean, that's a that's a longer conversation, but like if you can pay me kickers, accelerators, the way that a salesperson makes commission, I guarantee you that I can outsell most sales teams, especially when you're marketing Fuck. to marketers. <laughs> it's it's I mean, I I know for a fact right now, like I outsell our BDR team as far as meetings booked. I outsell I could outsell most of our AEs because they're the ones that have put me on most mm -hmm. calls anyways. But like I'm not paid as as a salesperson, but please, like, if you want to give me a lower base and like pay me like a salesperson, I will gladly take that because I could smash that number all day. Yeah, it was crazy. Back in uh 2018, I was a marketing manager making 95k a year and was driving more than a, a, in 12 months more than a million dollars of revenue through the website when the previous year was zero and then watching the deals that i got salespeople making 350k in commission for what was generated through here um and obviously i'm not going to get into these levels of attribution i'm just using this as a core example but like the idea that all that commission went there i watched people go to president's club go on awesome vacations do all this shit that pay, paid for by the company the way that companies still think about this like president's club and sales commissions and things like that are just from an old world right it's just a diff it's a it's from a different time where the seller had way more control over the outcome and the other people in the organization had less control and so the thing that i've been talking through and this is a real like sort of interesting thing that we could debate because i am going to go down the commission track like i actually think that the the appropriate thing is to have no commission plan not to take the what's happening in sales and then spread it out and then have your product team and your marketing team all on variable commissions against revenue it's essentially a bonus plan at that point um instead of doing that actually restructuring the compensation plan for sales is the appropriate thing and then you have to like sort of rebalance and recalibrate against your the rest of the other functions because I think that and like marketers would end uh, people that can create demand. I don't even want to call them marketers. People that can create demand, their comp should go up because it's a highly valuable skill. It's just like hiring a software engineer 
for Google in 2007. Like the, there are very few people that can create demand. And those are the people that you need inside of your company. And so, yeah, I would love like, do you agree with that? What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely agree with it because it's, it's interesting. Like, let's just say your marketing team sources, say 70% of the pipeline, right? So like marketing's lifting the, the majority there. And it's usually only a small group of people that are like, you know, facing that revenue team. And like, mm. why should they be comped less than a sales team that's really just coming in at the very end and trying, you know, not even closing the deal themselves because it's still a team selling motion. Yeah. Like, I just think that marketers are comped unfairly. And I mean, listen, like, you know, I get a bonus right now and like the bonus is, is nice, but like, I would much rather be paid for what I can drive. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. yeah. That, that leads me to an interesting sort of next point because probably more me than anybody has been talking in the in historically about this idea of sourcing pipeline. And then it creates this very uh, adversarial sort of look between like who actually sourced that or blah, blah, blah. And so what I've actually, um, we, we put into place in Refine Labs that I designed is the idea of not looking at it about what department sourced it, but looking at what captured the demand. When you think about it, this and you remove the departments and you think about what's capturing and creating demand, it removes a lot of the emotion from it. And then you can see, okay, where are the places that we capture demand? We capture demand through our website. We capture demand through uh, events sometimes, our partner channel, SDR source, quote unquote, ABM, sales self-source. You got five main sources of pipeline. And then your, your, the job of the organization is to figure out where, how do I want to balance this of where we're going to invest to get more pipeline based on, in my opinion, the sales velocity of those different, the different funnels. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is, it, I feel like, you know, self-reported attribution. I feel like that's a big piece of it too. Like we double down, like funny enough, LinkedIn organic is probably one of our biggest drivers of pipeline. I would say, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's a huge number. Yeah. Ours is, 40, ours is 47%. Of yeah. yeah <laughs> it, it outperforms all of our other channels. And so why wouldn't we double down on that from a creation, you know, just employees and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Events is a chunk of it and, you know, search and all of that. But like, it's doubling down on what works. People still have that old school mindset of just like, oh, these are the channels that always work. Yeah, we're just going to yeah, float yeah. it out Here's there. our marketing plan that we had in 2017 that we copied and pasted 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. And that's where we'll start. And then we'll just try and put, we'll do all that stuff. And then we'll just sprinkle a little bit of LinkedIn over here and everything will be good. You mentioned self-reported attribution. I got to, I got to bring it up because you, every, every person I talk to that's done this keeps saying this is a game, they're game changing insights. It changes how we do marketing, allows us to focus. It gives us insights that we never see. And you got this whole other camp on here, mainly attribution vendors that are saying, oh, self-reported attribution doesn't work. We'd just love to hear from your experience, some of the things that it's unlocked. How long have you been doing it and what have you found? Yeah, we, we switched over in November of 2021. Um, and so as soon as we switched over, we immediately saw like, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, specific, like my name being called out on LinkedIn, other employees being called out on mm -hmm. LinkedIn, different communities, DGMG, um, mm -hmm. you know, Pavilion, all these other ones. So great, specific events. We now know where to spend our time. Like, why are we going to focus on channels that aren't working, mm -hmm. especially because we can see the inbounds and inbounds drive the majority of our business. Yeah, We're going to just double down on what works. And so it's why my position was created around evangelism and like the fact of like, great. Like we want people to create content. Like my name is associated with the brand. Like people, like our CEO even says like, Hey, like pe when people think of Alice, they think of your name. Like that's, that's huge. And like, how can you empower other people to do that? And like, again, self-reported attribution helps. Yeah. 
What was it like before you had self-reported attribution? Because I think the after is interesting, right? We're getting LinkedIn. We see these events, things like that. But for most people listening to this podcast, they're actually in the before stage. So, and I think that if you sort of, and I'll do, I'll try and do my best too. If you describe what it's like before that, then maybe they'll, it'll resonate with some behavior. It it was just more, it's like, you know, it was like Google. It was like a bunch of things that would come in and it was just like search. And it was, you know, we, we use first touch, last touch. And so it was just things that would come in that we know wasn't the case. And I would only know because people would DM me on LinkedIn say, Hey, I'm filling out an inbound demo request because of X, Y, Z. But was attribution covering that? No, absolutely not. And so luckily, like when you have leadership that understands that and can help make that change and champion it, it's a huge difference versus understanding that old school mindset and leaders that just think like, no, attribution is the end all be all. Yeah. Same thing for me. The, when you start listening to what your customers are telling you, you immediately know that the data that you're getting from attribution software is incomplete. And so just spending a little bit of time talking to people, right? A lot of marketers that are listening to this podcast never go on a sales call, never actually have the opportunity, never produce content on LinkedIn. So never have the opportunity to have customers say, I saw you on LinkedIn, or I heard about you on this podcast, because a lot of people will say that at the first beginning of the sales call, they don't ask on their forms. And so they just don't have any of the actual insights. And if so, if you're, uh, I guess the encouragement here is to like, maybe go, if you use Gong or something, go and listen to the last five sales calls and see how they started, especially from your inbounds and start figure out like, what are our customers actually saying, which will then lead you to the conclusion of we have a measurement gap. Let's take the road to evangelism. Obviously you, you lead evangelism and Alice and you've been doing a great job on it for a really long time. And I sort of consider myself an evangelist too. So uh, I think we're both kind of doing it pretty well. Where do you think the state of this is right now? Obviously, the opportunity is huge. There are very few companies that are capitalizing on it for whatever reason. Maybe we can go into some of those reasons. And it's just like the stuff stares companies right in the face. It's like here, right here is the things that you could do that like other people are showing you that you see working, that you know work for you, that you and they're right here. Why don't people move on them? Yeah, it's so interesting because I think like when I think of C-level, like CEOs, like they should be evangelists. Like it's their company or they're leading the company. Like that 100% makes sense. I think of you, I think of Sangram, like I think of all these other people. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to pave the path for what it looked like for non-executives to take an evangelism route. What does it look like for someone that creates content on a regular basis that drives pipeline and is so closely associated with the, the sales team? that is jumping on calls, knows what the customer wants. Like, that's what I've been focused on. That sounds like a new type of role, right? Like, especially when you start to blend this. uh, I think that there's a very distinct difference between doing marketing and selling. But I also think that there's a very massive value in being able to do both. Um, And so you see a lot of smart salespeople over the past three or five years have realized and recognized and started moving to figure out how to how do I balance out my skill set in marketing because they recognize that the way that they're going to hit plan the way that they're going to go to president's club and be the number one rep is to figure this part out too but to go the other direction I don't think marketers ever do that right so like maybe you know you got some people that are in field at companies that are very sales focused the marketers do a lot of actual like sales or sa- sales helping but for the average b2b marketer like you're not going to sales calls you're not trying to pitch a customer and so what do you think about that sort of like, I don't want to even call it hybrid, but that blend between those two skill sets and being able to do both like you basically become a different version 
of a full cycle sales rep from 2000 like the early 2000s right like you're out in the field you got you got you you got to prospect you got to get the people you got to talk to them you got to close them you got to probably not take care of them in this case but yeah it's a really interesting skill set it's no i agree and i think like the fact that i was in sales before i moved over to marketing definitely helps with that and like i think a lot of failed marketers actually started as like sdrs or bdrs and then moved over to the marketing side of it but I feel like it's it's important. And I, again, it goes back to the whole like why people should be paid like salespeople. Like again, if I'm out there, if I go to the inbound conference and I go close or source three opportunities today, why shouldn't I be paid on those? I guarantee you that I could sell them quicker. <laughs> and so I think it's the fact that like, again, this is a role that needs to be created. Is it easier in MarTech and sales tech? Absolutely. When you get into mm-hmm. IT and cybersecurity, it, it's very, it's it's harder, but you still have subject matter experts, which I know you're a big fan of. Mm-hmm. But the fact that, you know, you have these people that are non-executives that understand the sales side of it, understand the customer, understand the marketing, it can go advocate for your company. Like, why wouldn't companies invest in that? Like, yeah. I think it's a, a new position that needs to be created. I had to pitch it internally myself. I know there's some other people like Nick Posey out there that has one, Jen Allen. Like, people are starting to to have these roles that are created for them. Mm-hmm. And I think you're going to see more of it. Yeah. And do you think that that role includes the sales part that you talked about? It's not just posting content, right? Uh, yeah, I think I think it includes the sales part. And again, it's like, you know, you're that full cycle AE and like, you know, you should be paid like it. And like, you understand the entire thing. It's, it's just thinking about like the entire buyer's journey as well. Yeah, I guess like, what's holding you back from just becoming a rep? Trust me, I was, I, I've been asked many times to go be a sales rep. And like, when I see the commission that they're making, I'm like, absolutely. But I just don't see myself doing that long term. Like I much would rather like be out there, be the face for a brand, be like, you know, doing the podcast, the events, like speaking, like I get like high energy off of that versus like, you know, go cold calling people all day. The thing that I'm trying to point in is why isn't what you're describing the activities that you do as a sales rep today? Right? Like that it's almost paving the way. I knew what your answer was going to be when I asked you the question, which is that who the fuck wants to be a sales rep in the little box that they make you play in in SaaS sales? No one, right? Especially when you know that the things that you do as a marketer are significantly more impactful than making cold calls. And so why isn't there the availability of a rep to be able to sort of like also take on some of these? Why aren't reps doing that today? I think there's some, I, I yeah. do see some reps that are doing it, but yeah. it's, it's not widely adopted yet because I don't think that it's pushed from the top down. Like I don't think organizations or at least some most organizations don't get this yet. Like they don't mm-hmm. see the value that you and I see. And I think that's Definitely part not. of the issue. Yeah. When I think about this role of evangelism or something like that, what comes to my mind is that really the it feels like the best people in most companies, especially like selling to marketers and salespeople is a little bit different. But it feels like for a majority of other companies that sell, you sell into ER physicians or into VPs of finance or to developers, that's potentially the best people are your customer success team. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think like, again, it's like, those are the people that know the product inside and out. And it's like, I think it's kind of like, all right, great. Who's your subject matter experts around these areas? And especially like the, the customer success side definitely makes a lot of sense. The issue is it could be sometimes people outside of customer success. Like I consider myself like an SME for like the area. And I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that think about like, 
what are subject matter experts? What do they bring? And I feel like that evangelism piece actually ties the two really nicely together. And you could call it subject matter expert, but like, you know, when you, my last company, it was uh, engineers and developers. It was boring industry, but like our CTO was like that person. Mm -hmm. Like he was the you, like everyone wanted to meet him. And like, we would just put him in all of our content and it would drive a ton of like inbound. Yeah. But like he was that subject matter expert. Right on. Nick, all right, you're in the driver's seat. Where do you want this conversation to go? Oh man. Um, you know, I, I am I am curious on your thoughts around like, you know, obviously working for a gifting platform. Like, how do you tie gifting and or direct mail into an outbound strategy as an amplifier, not as like a silver bullet? So um the short answer is that we're probably gonna start experimenting with this stuff in Q4. So I'm speaking more hypothetically or theoretically than anything. I personally think the best situation to use gifting is in uh, customer success and expansion. I think that when you're in a like sort of a net new play, and obviously your platform does a lot of stuff for net new, so no disrespect or stuff like that. But when you're in a net new play, to me, it sort of feels a little disingenuous um, with the thinking around it. I'm sure that there are ways to be really personalized and crafted and things like that. But I love when there's a CMO that we've been working with for 18 months that's super happy. I know where she likes to go skiing. I know these different things. And then I send her a Burton snowboarding hat and gloves in November for the season or something like that. So being it and then like, was that working toward, did we have an active expansion opportunity open? No. Did we expand with that company 60 days later? Yes. Um, and so I think there's a level of having, I think that you can do it in net new with the right intent, but it really comes down to intent. And when I think with uh, any sort of tactic like this, it's sort of like, it might start with the right intent, but then it gets drilled down for scale and then gets measured on really activity-based metrics that don't have a quality metric associated with them. So yeah, you got to send 10 gifts a week or something like that. And you end up just sending it to a bunch of people without context or personalization. So I think there's a really nice customer success play that would probably generate significant ROI if you have a like an NRR business, if you have an expansion-based business. And then on the uh, on the net new side, if I was going to try this, I'm just thinking out loud here. I think it would be associated with some like level of intent to get someone over the edge. So I think it would be, you know, we have them cookied or we know that they're in a, we know their accounts in a retargeting has been on our website, has been on our pricing page, whatever we decide. And that triggers a outreach in that method to a specific person. I also love the idea of a, like a curated event in that situation. I also love the idea of a cold introduction to a happy customer in that case. So I think there's a lot of different plays that you could make leveraging that info on the customer. Yeah. I mean, you brought up a good point. I, I'm curious on digging deeper on that. So like you talked about like relationships and I mean, that's, you know, knowing someone outside of their nine to five, like what are you passionate about in your five to nine? And like, that's when you get to really build that relationship, I think. And so I'm curious on like, you know, how do you, in your mind, like how do you tie like authenticity to building relationships, to getting to know someone to like really build that bond through like let's just go even like outbound marketing. Like I know that's kind of like a hot topic right now inbound, outbound versus inbound. Like yeah. how would you tie those two together? How do you even define outbound versus inbound? I think we should help some people here because I, I doubt that even you and I define them the same. That's, I mean, for me, like outbound is when we are going after our target accounts to get them to hopefully come inbound. 
So like, think of it like ABM. Like I think of ABM as like a one-to-one, one-to-few, one-to-many that you're going outbound to drive them inbound. Okay. What's yours? So would running ads to an account be outbound or inbound? I mean, I think it's part of your outbound strategy. Okay. Yeah. Then what constitutes inbound? I think it's just, it's, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's, I think it's the fact that like, you know, the inbound is you are capturing the demand that was already created on the outbound piece of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I think there's a demand creation and demand capture parallel here, but when companies go outbound, they do it typically in a way to capture demand when the intent should often be to create it. Um, so I'm with that. What was the question one more time? So how would you tie like authenticity relationship building to your outbound strategy as I guess a, as an yeah. amplifier? I think that um, so where I'm at right now, and this might come out of left field, but I think it'll resonate with you is that I do all of the upfront work in the content. So I can I actually scale re- like the initial stages of relationship building and credibility and stuff like that through content on the Internet which then allows me to get to third base so that when I have the in-person interaction, there's so much context. People feel like they know you. And so you can accelerate the beginning stages of relationship building and scale it by using content first, which then opens so many doors. The amount of CMOs that would take a meeting with me or pay to have a meeting with me today Versus 2018, it was literally zero people in 2018. Maybe this, maybe the CMO that I worked for, right? Zero people to now, purely because of the credibility that's been built over time. So, um, and I think that's missing in most outbound strategies. There's no credibility. It's just you're getting some email from Eric or Jamie or some random AE that you have no context on, have never heard of, do not trust, saying, "Hey, you want to have a meeting? I can help you." And so there's that's I think the the missing part in an outbound strategy is sort of that beginning part, in my opinion. Yeah, I just have like one follow up to that. Like, so like, where do you even begin? Because I agree with you 100% is that is the content piece like you're, you know, people get to know you. And I feel like that's the thing that I've done. Like people just feel like they know me because of the content that I create. Like I bring my entire self onto that platform. And I know you focus, you know, on like the videos and like the true like marketing side. Like I talk about whatever now and like, but still like people feel like they, they know me. And like, where do you even begin? Like if, again, you know, you being the CEO, like it's one thing, but like for someone that's a, a B2B marketer that wants to go down this route, like where do you focus? Where I started was by talking about the things that I had already experienced or the things that I was experiencing in that time. So if you go back and look at some of my early content, it was about how I was using Facebook ads to run account-based ads in 2017 before Cambridge Analytica, and nobody was listening to me. Everyone's out there buying Terminus so they can run display ads. And I'm talking about, hey, you don't need to buy this software tool for 100 grand. You can actually just go in here, pick your accounts on Facebook, literally type in, I typed in 550 accounts name by name and chose them because you couldn't upload a list at that point. And I ran the ads. And then what do you get? Uh, We need tech for that. My buyers aren't on Facebook. This is 2018. My buyers aren't on Facebook. It's like, what is going on? And so uh, I'm not even sure how I got got there, but you got something going there. (laughs) 
No, that was good. It was, you know, I feel like people people get so confused because they they don't know where to begin. And I agree, like those yeah, lessons of yeah, what you're working on. Getting me back shoot. on track to on where to begin. So talking about the things that you're uh that you are doing right now, and then over time, it's your job to be doing things that are leveled up. And so it's not like you just start as a marketing manager and then just start talking about how what a CEO should do. It should be, how am I doing this thing in marketing? How am I going to expand that? So now I'm looking at maybe marketing and not just ads, but now field and product marketing. How do I start to expand? And now all of a sudden, I'm talking to all of marketing. Um, and so I think there's a clear progression. I love the the idea of producing content because there's a history. And you could go back and look at how my message and content has developed as I've become from a solo consultant with two clients making 10K a month to the business that I have with more than 100 people now. And as a content creator and as a evangelist, like you need to evolve with the bit with your business and with your customers. Yeah. yeah, I definitely agree with you, man. Right on. You good to go? Yeah, yeah, that was that was good. I yeah. mean, that was that, that, that was what I had. Yeah, yeah man, that's a blast. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, Nick, it's been awesome to have you. Great to see you in person. Maybe we'll go out and have some food tonight. Who knows? Um, thanks for having you on the show. For everyone, thanks for being here. Uh, we were going to stream this on LinkedIn Live, but we had technical difficulties. But stay tuned. We are going to give LinkedIn Live another shot. So thanks, everyone. See you later. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode. Music.